traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week, South Korea and Japan worked out a deal to compensate South Koreans forced to work for Japanese firms during the Second World War. We'll explain why the agreement has left many would-be beneficiaries unsatisfied. And most people avoid stinging insects. Justin Schmidt often sought them out allowing himself to be stung more than a thousand times and creating a vivid, descriptive pain scale. Our obituaries editor reflects on the life of the King of Sting. But first... Last weekend... Ukraine's most enthusiastic military donor held a general election. Relative to GDP, Estonia gives more military aid to Ukraine than any other country. And that looks set to continue with the re-election of Prime Minister Kaya Kalas. We have to uh, do major reforms regarding uh, green transition, for example, but we also have to invest in our security. Our aggressive neighbor has not uh, vanished and will not vanish, so we have to work with that and also... She and her reform party stormed to an emphatic victory. A victory not just for her, but for Ukraine and for other European countries worrying that support for Ukraine and the economic toll it takes might not play well at the polls. The world should care about Estonia's election. Matt Steinglass is a Europe correspondent for The Economist. It shows that being vehemently opposed to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and sticking up for Ukraine, despite suffering economic consequences, can be good politics, at least in the parts of Europe that are very close to Russia and worried about Russian aggression. Now, before we get into the election itself, tell us a bit about Estonia and why it is such a crucial ally for Ukraine. It's a very small country. Its population is just 1.3 million or so. But it has donated its entire complement of artillery, except for some new stuff that it's getting from the Americans, to Ukraine because it considers Ukraine its first line of defense. Estonia itself was occupied by the Soviet Union, so the issue of Russian aggression always plays a big role in the country's conception of itself. And it has become a leader in rallying other European countries to donate to Ukraine's defense. And now tell us about Kaya Kallas, who just won. What is she like? Kaya Kallas is a very interesting politician. Uh, She is extremely easy to talk to and informal. She's done appearances on places like Adam Grant's uh, Workplace Psychology podcast, and she'll talk about having imposter syndrome, feeling like she's not up to the task. 
I read um, uh, the book by Sherry Sandberg, Lean In, and there uh, she talks about the imposter syndrome. And I was reading this and I was writing on the side of the book that that's me, that's me with an exclamation mark. Uh, she says the worst advice that she's ever received was that she should act more like a man. But in the course of the war in Ukraine, she has acquired an extraordinary sort of gravitas because of her adamant support for Ukraine and her efforts to warn the West against Russian aggression. Uh, at a time when a lot of countries were unsure that the Russians would invade Ukraine, she was sure that it could happen. Tell us a bit more about her support and how that's manifested itself. Well, at a time when Germany was worrying about whether to give any lethal aid to Ukraine and was only providing helmets, she was already sending Estonian artillery to Ukraine. She toured Western Europe, rallying European support and warning Europeans that they should take what Vladimir Putin was saying seriously, that he was telling them what he wanted, that his essay in summer of 2022, claiming that Ukraine was an indelible part of Russia and was deeply linked to Russia through history, that the Ukrainians and Russians were actually one people, was real, that Russians really think that way. NATO must remain vigilant against the threat uh, posed by Russia. Uh, recent buildup uh, in and uh, around Ukraine or the operations uh, carried out uh, on the soil of uh, NATO's allies is extremely worrying. Uh, therefore, NATO must also continue supporting Russia's neighbors, uh, especially those who are the most uh, exposed to Russian pressure like Ukraine and Georgia. And Matt, the intensity of her position and the scale of her victory suggests that her support for Ukraine is really popular. Tell us about her opponents. Like many European countries, Estonia has a multi-party system. There are a bunch of parties in parliament. The Reform Party, which is the party that she leads, is a liberal centrist party, which has a long history of running the country, kind of a technocratic party. In recent years, the last five years or so, the most important party and the party that finished second in their most recent elections is ECRE, a very far-right populist party along the model of a lot of sort of populist parties in Europe these days. It's anti-EU, it's anti-gay, it's anti-immigrant, it engages in COVID and climate denial. And the other main competitor, the number three finisher in the, in the last election, is the center party, which used to be described also as a populist party, but lately because they're less wacky, they are considered almost mainstream. But they attract the majority of the vote of ethnic Russians in Estonia. And there is a large ethnic Russian population there because of the countries of history of occupation by the Soviet Union. In the weeks before the election, evidence came out that the propaganda organization controlled by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the head of the Russian paramilitary organization called the Wagner Group, had tried to mount influence or operations to help the far-right ECRA party, that first populist party that I, that I mentioned. To what extent did the war play a part in how people voted? The war was mainly important because it has created a sense of solidarity across Estonian society. And it has made it harder to drive wedges between different parts of the population in the way that a party like ECRA would like to do. It's made Estonians even more pro-European, although it was already a very pro-EU country. And it has put the country into a narrative mode where the main question is defense against the enemy in the East. And when that's the mode that people are thinking in, they rally around the flag, they rally around a strong leader. So it's been very successful and wise for Kaya Kallas 
to take this very strong stance to profile herself prominently as a defender of Ukraine. She's built a big profile abroad as well. She's toured throughout Europe. She's a prominent figure at places like the Munich Security Conference. She appears in international media as a great defender of Ukraine. It's very important that we uh, speed up the military aid to Ukraine. I think that uh, all of us have looked to the warehouses what we have, um, but we should do more. And we should give a clear signal to uh, European defense industry to produce more. And, and it's clear I from the results of the election that this has all been a very successful political strategy. So was the election entirely about Ukraine then? Actually, the Ekra party took a strategy of avoiding direct confrontation over Ukraine. They maintain that they also support Ukraine and its fight against Russia, although that's questionable with at least some of their candidates. But they fought the election more on economic grounds. The war has not been good for Estonia's economy. Inflation was over 19% last year. The economy actually shrank 0.3% because of high energy costs. Estonia had been dependent on Russian energy to some extent. And that was a logical strategy for them to pursue. It just turned out that the war's overwhelming profile meant that they were unable to seize the message from Kayakalas. You mentioned earlier that Yevgeny Prigozhin had tried to influence the election. Do you see Russia's influence campaign continuing? Do you think they'll do what they can to destabilize Kayakalas' government? I think Russia will certainly try to do what they can to destabilize Kayakalas' government, but I don't think they have a lot of avenues to do so right now. Ekre, as I mentioned, has had to be very careful in distancing itself from Russia. And Ekre makes claims like everyone else is helping the, the Ukrainians first. We're the only ones who are trying to help Estonians first. But that's about as far as they can go. If you tried to spread an explicitly anti-Ukrainian message or any sort of, quote, pro-peace, unquote, message that doesn't explicitly support the Ukrainian side, you would have a lot of trouble in Estonia right now because the polity is so solidified and coherent in its support for Ukraine and its antagonism to Russia. The war in Ukraine is likely to play a part in a lot of upcoming elections. Vladimir Putin's strategy seems to be based on his belief that the West's attention will falter, that ructions will emerge in, in society over supporting Ukraine. What lesson do you think the world should take from Kalos's victory? I think the most interesting conclusion from the result is simply that Estonia is much less split than we thought it was, and that that populist, anti-European wing of European politics does not look like it's on the winning side at the moment. This was one of the countries where you were really worried that centrist, reasonable, pro-democratic politics were not going to hold, that people would not be committed enough to the importance of liberal democracy and of defending the European Union for that to overcome economic anxieties, especially when it's a matter of a small country having to devote a lot of resources to protecting another country. And it turned out they did. It turned out that people cared enough to vote for that in overwhelming numbers, to hand her a historic like record win. This is just a striking win for liberal parties all across the board. All right, Matt, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, John. Today's episode of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics, is a little bit different. 
It's looking at a decades-old murder and what that crime can tell us about the West's past and its future. It's a possible mafia murder mystery revealed by a changing climate. My colleague Aaron Braun headed to Las Vegas to check out the case. America's largest reservoir, Lake Mead, is shrinking. That's laid bare the West's vulnerability to a changing climate. But the receding shoreline is also revealing other things. The mega drought in the West is revealing a dark side of climate change. In May, the plunging water levels at Nevada's Lake Mead uncovered two bodies. One in a barrel, Las Vegas police identified as a homicide victim. The second found in a newly surfaced sandbar. No foul play is suspected. Five more sets of human remains have been exposed since Hemingway Harbor Doe, the body in the barrel, was found. Officials think these victims probably all drowned. But Hemingway Harbor Doe is different. Investigators say the severe drought could lead to more unsettling discoveries possibly linked to mob activity. As more remains are found, some experts believe Mother Nature has exposed a mafia graveyard. Police used the body's clothes to figure out that he had died in the mid-1970s or early 80s. That was right when the mafia was at its height in Las Vegas. And the details of the crime, gunshot, barrel, desert, all feel like something right out of a Martin Scorsese film. Will a furious Joe Pesci show up halfway through the podcast? I won't say yes, but I won't say no either. To find out... Listen to Checks and Balance, The Body in a Barrel, available later today wherever you get your podcasts. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. With signs and candles in hand, hundreds of South Koreans gathered in front of Seoul City Hall this week in protest. The South Korean government is moving closer to a rapprochement with their eastern neighbors and once occupiers, Japan. But historical injustices are not easily forgotten by those who were used as forced laborers in Japan. Though compensation is being arranged, protesters demand more. They want an apology. This week, the government of Yung son yeol the South Korean president, announced a fund that they were creating in order to compensate Koreans who had been forced into labor. The hope is that this will end a dispute that's been poisoning the water between the two countries for a long time now. Andrew Knox is the economist's sole bureau chief. But not everyone really agrees with Mr. Yoon's approach to this. There have been accusations of him failing to hold the Japanese accountable for the wrongdoings they'd done in the past. 
And remind us, just in as much of a nutshell as possible, why the relationship between these two countries is so rocky and what past efforts have there been to smooth it out? Sure, I'll try and race through this because, as I'm sure you can imagine, it's very uh, long and fraught. But basically, as it came to the end of the 19th century, there was massive contestation going on between the great powers of East Asia. One of these was a war that was fought between the Japanese and the Russians, which ended in a treaty that made it a protectorate of Imperial Japan. That was in 1905, and then in 1910, the Japanese fully annexed the Korean Peninsula, and they occupied it as colonial rulers until their defeat in the Second World War in 1945. During that time, especially during the Second World War, it was fairly common practice for Koreans to be brought over to Japan in order to work as forced labor, uh, thousands and thousands of them. And two of the firms that benefited from this were Nippon Steel and Mitsubishi Heavy Industry. In 2018, the Supreme Court here in South Korea upheld a lower court ruling that Mitsubishi and Nippon owed compensation to the victims who had been forced to work in their factories or to their surviving relatives. The Japanese government was not happy about this at all. They contested the decision and argued that the issue had been settled under a treaty that normalized relationships between the two countries back in 1965. And the real worry of the Japanese government was that the South Korean courts would order the seizure of the Korean assets of these two companies. Back in May, when Yoon suk came to power, he made it one of his top priorities to repair relations between the two. And ever since, there's been this closed-door effort to figure out some way of resolving the issues created by this Supreme Court ruling. And I gather this week's announcement is part of that effort. Tell us about what has been agreed to. So what the Korean government has said is that it would create this fund that would provide compensation for all of the plaintiffs whom the Supreme Court deemed merited it. The idea is that the Korean government is on the hook for this, And they're asking South Korean companies that received money under the 1965 treaty because part of what was agreed was that Japan would give Korea $800 million in grants and in low-interest loans. And some of this was distributed to South Korean companies, many of which still exist today. So they're being encouraged but not forced to contribute. And Japanese firms may also contribute on a voluntary basis. In announcing this plan this week, South Korea's foreign minister, Park Jin, described it as a window of opportunity. But he also intimated that it might be the last opportunity. But clearly there are those in Korea who don't see this as sufficient, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a deeply felt issue. It's very emotional for a lot of people. Yam Gong-duk, who went to Japan at the age of 13 under the pretense of studying abroad to become a teacher, was in fact forced to work in an airplane factory run by Mitsubishi. Speaking at a press conference, she said that it's not really money she wants at all. In fact, she said recently and on previous occasions that she would never accept money from anyone but those who had in fact wronged her. And what she really wants is to die having actually received an apology from those who forced her into work. And Japan won't apologize? Well, one of the sticking points here is that from Japan's point of view, they actually already have. In 1998, 
Kim Dae-jung, South Korea's then president, went to Japan and he met with his counterpart, Obuchi Kaizo, and they came up with his agreement. And in it, one of the things stated was that Japan offers a deep remorse and heartfelt apology for the tremendous damage and suffering that had been caused by the Japanese colonial occupation. Fast forwarding to today, that's still not really regarded as a sincere apology by a lot of people here in Korea. But Kishida Fumio, Japan's current prime minister, is being really careful not to upset those on the right wing of his party, the LDP, because they're really adamant that Japan needn't make any further apologies beyond what it's already said. So... Why will this time be any different? Do you think this really is a last opportunity to settle relations between the two countries? I mean, I'm not sure I'd say it's the last opportunity. You know, the run of history is long, but it's also looking like we've sort of been here before. The two have come together and agreed on terms and then deals have fallen apart and things have gone wrong. The big question is... How exactly Mr. Kishida and the rest of the Japanese political classes speak of their country's past ills? Mr. Kishida himself was really cagey when commenting on the plan this week. He said that it wasn't appropriate to discuss specifics, but that Japan would, quote, uphold the recognition of history made by previous government cabinets. So what they've arrived on is that Japan won't offer any new apologies, but in order to stem anger and calls for more from Korea, they will essentially stick to the apologies previously offered. So do you think this new plan will work? It's very hard to say at this stage. The two countries really stand to gain a lot. Aside from the economic benefit of closer cooperation, they share security concerns, most notably over China and over North Korea, which has been particularly belligerent of late, conducting a lot of missile tests and military exercises. This week, Mr. Yoon referenced the relationship to Japan and to the U.S. as being crucial to seeing off the threat. America's been really keen for the two to get along better, for them to mend their fences. And so almost immediately after the announcement, Joe Biden came out and hailed it as a groundbreaking new chapter of cooperation and partnership. But the hard sell here really is the South Korean public. The majority agree with Mr. Yoon that relations with Japan really have to improve. But according to one poll, 64% think that an apology from Japan and an investigation into these historic wrongdoings is a prerequisite for that to happen. And what's more, Mr. Yoon's political opponents, who are in a position where they can make things really tricky for him, are overwhelmingly likely to inflame that sentiment. So managing the domestic politics and the sentiment of South Koreans will be the crucial task for Mr. Yoon if he wants this to stick. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. To be stung by a wasp or a bee is a bizarre experience. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. It raises two questions... The first is, 
How can such a tiny insect inflict such remarkable pain? And the second is, what on earth have you done when you're just sitting in the sun enjoying a drink to provoke this vicious attack? Justin Schmidt wanted to know this as well, and he spent his life in a study of stinging insects. In the name of science, he plunged his arms into a whole colony of bees when he was moving a hive. He teetered up a tree on the edge of a cliff in order to saw down a hornet's nest. And he bravely put his trainer into a nest full of bullet ants and then ran away very fast. He went into the most extraordinary details of research. At one point, he was harvesting the venom of ants to compare the different species. And it took 400 ants to provide one thousandth of a teaspoon of venom. All in all, he spent 35 years investigating these creatures. He reckoned he'd been stung by 150 different species and probably, overall, he'd had a thousand stings implanted in him. And his pain threshold, to his regret, didn't seem to get any higher. He still found it jolly painful and sometimes he had to entice the insects to sting him. So the reluctant ones he would pick up and put on his arm and just entice them to perform. And then he'd curse rather a lot, take out his notebook, take out his stopwatch and write the whole experience up. He compiled in 1983 what he called the Schmidt Pain Index. And this was a ranking from one to four of the mildest stings up to the fiercest ones. As his anchoring value, he used the honeybee because most people have had experience of honeybee stings and they know what sort of thing it is. At the very mild end, he would put something like the sweat bee sting, which was light and ephemeral. And then he would go on to describe what it felt like. Almost fruity, he would say. A tiny spark has singed a single hair on your arm. He got poetical about all the stings. He found it was a good way to describe them. The honey wasp was rated too, like the honey bee. And he described this sting as spicy, blistering. A cotton swab dipped in habanero sauce has been pushed up your nose. Then he moved on at three to the red-headed paper wasp. This one he described as irrationally intense, the closest you will come to seeing the blue of a flame from within the fire. It sounded from this list like masochism, like someone who was simply enjoying pain for the sake of it. But he was doing serious research here. He wanted to find out why stings were more necessary to some insects than others. He found that solitary insects had milder stings. They didn't need them, even if they were in a place where there were plenty of predators. The stings became fiercer when the insects were structuring or in charge of complex societies. So he reckoned that the purpose of the sting was to open up food resources. By giving more food, then it would help to construct the societies. And then when the societies became very complex with insects specializing in all sorts of ways, then they would become necessary for defense. 
and all that defending of the society was incidentally left to the females. The males always fled and hid when predators came near. His own stings in childhood hadn't put him off. He was first stung by a bumblebee when he was playing in the garden of their house in the woods in Appalachian, Pennsylvania. He was brought up in the wilds, really, surrounded by flowers and insects and many bees. When he went to college, he thought at first he would study chemistry, but he rather missed the creepy crawlies in his life. In general, though, he thought insects had rather a poor deal. He was fascinated by them, but he found that any government funding for research into animals just stopped at the larger sort and didn't get as far as bees and ants. He worked for a long time in the Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Tucson, Arizona, near where he lived. But he found that if he wanted to investigate most of the stingers, he had to fund it himself though he lived rather a frugal life. He'd put himself in southeastern Arizona because it was there that he had found the most fierce species of harvester ant, the maricopa. If he wanted to find any that were even fiercer than that, he had to go to South and Central America. And there in Brazil, he'd found the bullet ant, which he described as pure, intense, brilliant pain like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail in your heel. Or worse possibly than that, he might find the warrior wasp, which he hadn't very often encountered. And the sting of this one he described as torture. You are chained in the flow of an active volcano. And he ended up, why did I start this list? Anne Rowe on Justin Schmidt who died at the age of 75. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Timo Sila. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste and Kevin Kaners, and assistant producer Barkley Bram, with extra production help this week from Margaret Kadifa, Sarah Larnuk, and Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.